I'm Bill Mitchell, and this is When Dating Hurts, a podcast dedicated to my daughter, Kristen, and all women taken from us before their time by the epidemic known as dating violence. I will speak with authorities in domestic violence, law enforcement professionals, families of victims and survivors, and survivors themselves. Alexandra was a dating abuse victim. She is now a dating abuse survivor. If you've been following this podcast, you will immediately recognize patterns seen in previous episodes, like similar warning signs that were dismissed, like an abuser who wants to immediately move into his target's apartment, or an abuser who takes financial advantage of his victim, and an abuser who makes promises that are never kept. They're all here in my interview with Alexandra. Today on the When Dating Hurts podcast, we're speaking with Alexandra, who has a rather, in a lot of ways, classic domestic violence story to tell. She will hit just about any note of warning signs from the very beginning right up until the time that she managed to call herself a survivor and get away from what was going on with this fellow. So welcome, Alexandra, to the podcast. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I am so glad you're here, too. And you sent me an email sometime back, and I read it over just minutes ago before we came on here. And every time I wondered about that next part that might be happening, it did happen. You know, I was kind of anticipating things. And unfortunately, your story never let me down. So I guess what I would like to do is have you tell us about meeting this person. What were the circumstances and what was it like? When I first met Taylor, it was actually online. So I think that some of these online platforms have been around, but they were newer and everyone was still trying to figure them out. But I've been using online platforms, so I wasn't completely terrified of it. But even from seeing his profile in retrospect, I think there was a red flag. There was only one photo. He looked really cute. He looked very fratty and was totally not my normal type. And I just swiped and it was a match. But I think what's important is what was going on during that time I met him. I had been dating someone on and off for the previous nine months. They were going through a divorce, very much wanted to spend time with me, but didn't want to do the commitment. So I think it was the perfect storm of, well, this person doesn't want me. And so when I met this person online, you know, we did have a connection. There was stuff we had in common that there was some intrigue there. Like, well, maybe this person actually wants me. When I finally did meet them, we met at a bar in Atlanta. It was just something really casual. It was near me. It was a place I'd been a lot. So I felt really safe. As soon as I saw him, thought he was cute, which I think that's what they're able to do. They're able to really charm you, play the part. And we sat down and we just started talking. So we did have a lot in common. This wasn't in my mind a fake connection. It felt really real. But I would say that date, there were red flags. And I think I was very much trying to be open-minded. Being Southern, especially, there's a lot of push on being married and having kids. And I was getting into my late 20s then. And a lot of my best friends that already got married were getting pregnant. 
I had people say, well, maybe you're too picky. Maybe your standards are too high. And so with this particular man, Taylor, I decided that I was going to be very open-minded. So even on the first date, there were things that in retrospect were red flag, but I wanted to stay open-minded. Funny enough, we actually ran into a couple that I used to nanny for and they came and sat with us. They were like, he's amazing. Y'all are going to get married. So you have this weird outside influence who they don't know him at all, but they're so excited to see me on a date that they're hyping him up as well. But the first red flag with him was he was very irritated that they were at the table. He wanted you all to himself. He wanted me all to himself. He wanted me not to be engaging with other people, not to have probably people that know me and I'm comfortable with as well. He was just rude to them. When they finally got up and left, he was complaining about, oh, they were way too close to me. They were talking too much. I just thought, okay, well, I'm an extrovert. Maybe that stuff doesn't bother me as much. I know them. He doesn't. Maybe it just made him uncomfortable. That, you know, in retrospect, you're like, what a weird way to react. But we continued on the date. He didn't really drink a lot, which to me was refreshing because a lot of times you go on these dates and you overdrink. We walk out. He walks me to the car. He's very polite, but a little awkward. Like, doesn't really give me a hug. And you're just like, okay, well, maybe this didn't go that well. This was nice, you know, and I don't think much of it. Get in my car. And before I know it, I have a text from him. And the text is, I'm staying with a friend. They're not answering the phone. I don't know if I have a place to stay. And I forgot to say this, Taylor lived probably, from what he said, an hour and a half away from Atlanta. So he'd driven in and said he was going to stay with friends. And so, of course, in my naive mind, I'm like, oh, I feel so bad. He drove all the way down here for me. I should give him a place to stay. I don't know him. Like, that's crazy. But I did. I felt bad. And, you know, I think my gut was saying, don't do it. Because I think that's when he was able to pull me in. And he comes and stays with me overnight. And nothing happened. So I'm like, oh, look how respectful he is. But I don't think any of that was true. I think he did have a place to stay or never planned to have a place to stay. So it really was from night one that he started the manipulation. And my mindset very much was, let me be open-minded. And going back to why I said he was fratty is, I think a lot of times we end up in these situations based on insecurities. I'm from the South. I went to University of Georgia where, you know, everyone, all the cool kids in my mind were like the fratty popular ones. And I was like, those guys never gave me the time of day when I was younger. So I think it was a little bit of like, oh, well, this is someone I want date in college. It's kind of cool. They're giving me the time of day now. So I do think it hit on the insecurity of he played this part of the good old Southern boy. Where was he from, actually? He was from North Georgia, Habersham County. So uh, okay. north of Georgia And I think that might come in later in the story, but that's two different cultures. I come from a city. He comes from the rural mountains. And so there are different cultural things you see. And so I think some of his red flags, I would put it to him being from a different place with a different culture. Just a little bit clumsy. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Um, So that was the first introduction. And, you know, I think the red flags continued and I'm sure as you have a lot of people say on your podcast, you know they're red flags, your gut is telling you something's off, but your brain is telling you you're overreacting, you're overthinking. So I was actually going up later that week, I want to say, to visit my best friend in Southwest Virginia. And so I would have been able to easily drive past his house. And so I said, hey, I'm actually going to be driving that way. Maybe I could stop and say hi. And he was like, of course, like I live with roommates. Yeah, come say hi. Then when the night actually came, when I was like 
going to go the next day or maybe that day, he was like, sorry, I'm working. You know, I'm too busy. You know, he started pushing me not to come to his house. And then next thing I know, he's like, well, why don't I come and see you? And you're like, that's not the plan. And I was planning to leave tomorrow. But then you're like, well, look at this person making an effort for me. So I thought it was weird. And I actually remember telling my mom and she goes, do you even think he lives where he says he lives? And of course, I'm like, mom, why do you have to jump to the negative? So (laughs) Taylor from the get go was good at starting the story of who he wanted to be. And I think who he thought I wanted him to be from understanding maybe who he dated before me as well as after me, he seemed to morph himself into different people and really play that part of who he thought would really, I guess, intrigue them. But there were even just little lies. And I remember he told me that he took the MCAT and he did say he graduated from the University of Georgia. So we have that in common. Why would I assume you're lying to me? But I remember he said he took the MCAT and said some crazy score, which I had nothing, you know, no knowledge about. You mean like super high score? Yeah, super high score. And so I was telling... Like he was going to be a doctor one day? He was going to be a doctor. He he was ready to go to med school. He was applying. Mm-hmm. I told my friends, I was like, oh, he just said he took the MCAT and got this score. And they said, you can't even score that high. Like, that's not even in the range. It was so good. They had an extra high score just for him. That's weird. I wonder why he said that. And it just... It was one of those things, you know, you put it in your brain and left it in the back, but I didn't question him on it. You wanted this to work out, you know? I wanted it to work out and I wanted to say to myself, you're putting yourself out there. You're being open-minded. You're not going to, you know, right when you see something that you don't like, you're not going to shut this person down because nothing's perfect. And like I said, I think there were other people in my ear telling me I was too picky. And then dating this other man who said, I don't want to get remarried. I don't want more kids. I like you, but I don't want to be with you long-term. You know, that's something in retrospect I wouldn't have done either. And it's interesting because a lot of times people say, I think people have an idea that you get into these situations with domestic violence when you're at your lowest. I think in many ways, my life was going pretty well. I had lost a lot of weight. I'd been working out a lot. I was really happy. I had a great group of friends, a really nice social life, was very confident and I think living my best life. But I do think there were probably other things going on mentally where you allow yourself to get into these, you know, like insecurities. Mm -hmm. So it continued where he became more and more obsessive. And I don't know if that's the right word or the word I would use when we first started dating. But he did the whole wine and dine you. He paid for everything, you know, made you feel special. But then he just started showing up at my house. He would just be like, oh, I'm here. And he, I think, you know, worked an hour plus away and it would be uninvited. And you're just like, okay, like, how do I deal with this? You know, I'm having fun with him. I want to hang out with him, but he's just showing up. And he would just be waiting when I get home from work. I remember a few weeks into dating, we spent the whole weekend together. It was the first time we spent the whole weekend together. And I was driving to breakfast and he starts just passing out in the car. Oh. We get to the restaurant. He's just kind of, his eyes are rolling back in his head, you know, kind of nodding off at the table, then gets up, goes to the bathroom. Mm -hmm. I assume throws up. I think that's what he told me. And then, you know, the cycle continues and I'm thinking, this is so embarrassing. What is going on? Me being naive, I had never been around drugs. I don't do drugs. 
my friends that do drugs aren't around me when they do them. I just, I didn't know what to look for with someone who was on drugs. And so I would guess he was on drugs at that point. So he stayed the whole weekend. And that Sunday, I remember thinking, this is not the person I want to be with. There's something off. I don't like it. I'm ready for him to leave. I think I started getting short with him. I finally asked him to leave. He then, of course, leaves something at my house, like I think a pair of glasses. So he has to come back? So he has to come back in his mind. So I said, I'm not letting this person come back. Ugh. I let him know that I had them. I didn't even want to leave them at my house for him to come pick up because I didn't want him back at my house. So I offered to go drop it off at his friend's house. And then this is another instance where you're like, can look in retrospect and say, if I had handled that differently, I wouldn't have been in this situation. But his friend was very nice and invited me to come hang out with them. And we were listening to music and we were talking about interesting subjects. And I saw that glimpse of the person I liked to begin with. I said, oh, this is who he is with his friend. This is who I initially saw. And the friend was talking him up and saying, you know, he's wonderful. So great. So here was this awesome experience where I was like, this person I like. And it wrapped me back in. Oh, yeah. Turned it on, turned it off. Yes. How far into the relationship would you say you were when you got the second glimpse of him the way you liked him? It would have only been, I think, about three. I got that second glimpse of seeing the side I liked of Taylor. I would say about another three weeks in. So pretty quickly, I saw all those red flags and was mulling it over in my head. And then he brought me back in. Right. So it was pretty fast. And then Easter was coming along. I said, okay, it's a little soon to meet my family. No one had ever met my family before. And you don't really know when's appropriate. And I think another caveat that's, that has played in my life is my parents got engaged after three months. And they just celebrated 39 years of marriage. Different time, but also my grandparents were married within eight weeks of knowing each other. So this idea of moving fast, and you know, I think they're celebrating... 70 in the next year or two, seven oh, years of marriage, that's which is wonderful. But this idea of moving fast did not scare me because I said, oh, well, these people, you know, my family moved fast and it's worked out. So the whole idea of take it slow, steady, I didn't necessarily think was necessary. I ended up bringing him to Easter lunch with my family. I don't know what they actually all thought. And I think some of them in retrospect were like, we didn't like him. Whereas though, I do think some of them right away saw through him. And I come from four kids. So there were, you know, a lot of different opinions in there. And I'm the oldest of four. So I think there were a lot of expectations on me as well, a lot of judgment. So anything that was said to me, you're just judging me. You're just being too hard on me. But I remember he even came over to my parents' house the first time and he was dipping and spitting into a cup at my parents' house. Oh. And you're just like, that is just total disrespect. And my mom looked at him and said, are you planning to stay around for a while? Because this behavior isn't great. You know, so right away, she just told him how she felt, I believe. And once again... He needed to get her out of the picture, didn't he? He needed to get her out of the picture. I think he could see that my mom had opinions. Yeah, she's a problem. Mom's a problem. Mm -hmm. And then my sister as well. You know, I was very, very close to my younger sister. She's 12 years younger than me. So at that time, she was still in high school. But I think he really tried to play... I think to, to wrap her in, but she saw it right away as well. To begin with, that romantic part did not last very long. The manipulation started right away with Taylor. And then 
he started not having money, which I thought was interesting. And so all of a sudden I started paying for everything. He, we would get somewhere. He's like, oh, I'm going to buy this for you. And we would get to the register and he's like, oh, can you pay for it? I think something that could be unique to my situation, which also helped me get out sooner is I had the financial power in the relationship. And by that, I don't mean I had a lot of money, but I had a job and I had money coming in. And I didn't have to rely on him for money. And he, mm-hmm. on the other hand, could not keep a job, did not have money coming in, therefore relied on me. And I think if it had been reversed, it would have been a lot harder for me to get out if I was expecting someone else to pay my rent and give me money for groceries. Absolutely. When Taylor and I were a little over a month into our relationship, I think we thought we were having a really deep connection. And he shared with me, I remember it vividly, driving up to his parents' house, I think to meet his parents. He shared with me that he was a recovering addict. I think that's an important part of my story because addiction is something that hearing that he was in recovery, I want it to be supportive. And I think there's a few reasons for that. My cousin now has been sober for four years, but throughout that time, I had seen her deal with addiction and I knew she's a good person. She has a disease and I want her to find love. So how can I say that I want my cousin to find love that my cousin's a good person and I'm not going to support someone who's an addict. Mm -hmm. Then I wanted to celebrate someone who has claimed to be sober for three years. That's great. That's a good amount of time. You're obviously putting in work. You see that you had a problem and there was wanting to give people second chances. And then also during that time, I was working for what are called accountability courts in the state of Georgia. And these courts give a lot of times treatment rather than punishment. And so they can range from mental health to DUI to domestic violence to drug use. And so a lot of times we look at what's the full picture. Instead of giving someone jail time, you give them a program they have to go to that includes drug counseling and getting a job and finding a permanent place to live. So really helping people get back on their feet. And so I'm working in that right now, where my whole mission is to help people who have addiction get back in life. So I was thinking, how hypocritical would it be that I'm giving this part of myself in my job, and now here's a chance that I could actually give an addict a second chance? Do I say I'm too good for that? That just, that was not something that crossed my mind. I said, of course I would. So he's really open about it. You know, he told me that his mom would drug test him occasionally just to make sure that he was clean. Weird things like that. But I think the addiction played a lot into the relationship because I was able to excuse a lot of his behavior in that I thought, well, maybe this is the addict in him, or maybe, maybe this isn't how he truly is. You know, I would go ahead and guess that. As we proceeded in our relationship, You know, I remember even telling my mom, oh, he's a recovering addict. And of course, I'm sure that is my mom's red flag already having concerns about him. But I was very much like giving him the benefit of the doubt. I was not thinking about much. So I think he was able to get my sympathy in a lot of ways. And then from there, a lot of the concerns I might have had for him or the red flags I had, I was able to chalk up to other things. And I think as I mentioned before, maybe coming from a different culture, maybe being a recovering addict. He worked in construction. Maybe there's a difference between the work world he's in versus my typical office work world. 
then it's like I started giving him money. Then the verbal abuse started. The money started missing. I've never told this story end to end. I think that a big part of my personality as well is to really look at multiple sides of a situation. I'm not just looking at how I feel about the situation, but I want to take the other person to account too. And so in this case, looking at the full picture of him, okay, so he's a recovering addict. He is from a smaller town. He works in construction. There's a lot of things that gave him different experiences than I had. So how am I going to judge someone based on my own experiences if they haven't lived the life I did? And so I was really open-minded to him. Also, a lot of his oddities and manipulation, I was able to come up with a reason why he acted that way. And I think one of the big turning points in our relationship was, you know, he continued to show up at the apartment, you know, was very, very present. I didn't have a lot of me time. So I went from being this single woman who was able to do whatever they wanted to having someone around all the time. That felt really overwhelming for me. But once again, I said, well, maybe this is how it is in a relationship, you know, with someone who actually wants to be with you. And so I remember him calling me and saying, you know, I was on the construction site. There was an accident, some strange story about him getting hurt. And he wanted to go to the doctor, but he didn't have money for it because he wasn't going to get paid or his health insurance had lapsed. Something odd. I said, well, what if I just give you $200 and you pay me back when you get paid? And he was like, absolutely not. I don't want to take your money. And I kept pushing it. And so once again, you're thinking, oh, okay, look, at he doesn't even want to take my money. You know, he's not using me. He's not manipulating me. So I did end up giving him that money and he never paid it back. That is, I think, when the money situation changed. I think he saw that I was willing to help him. And so he relied more and more on me for money. And another important thing to point out is he wasn't able to keep a job and he lied about his job. So the job he had when I met him is, I think he told me he was a mason. I remember we ran into his boss when we were up closer to where his parents live. He told me his boss was his uncle. What I thought was really odd is he didn't introduce me. And I'm thinking, this is your uncle. Why are you not introducing your new girlfriend to your uncle? And he talked about his uncle all the time. Are you standing right there looking at this man and he doesn't introduce you? Pretty much, yes. It's like I remember we're at a gas station. I'm right there, and no, no introduction. The word you maybe, I don't know if you've heard or not, because I'm kind of keeping a list of, of these. Like, you know what love bombing is, yes. I'm sure. There's one called pocketing, and that's an example of pocketing, meaning he has this relationship with you, but in effect keeps you in his pocket and doesn't want anybody else to really know you. Yes, I think especially anyone who would let his secrets out. Well, that's right. I don't want you to really be around that guy because he's going to say, let me let me tell you what Taylor did this one time and almost like, ha ha, I can't believe he stole some guy's motorcycle and ditched it somewhere. You know, whatever it is. And you're thinking, that's not nice. Exactly. And I think he knew his family was safe. And so with his family, he allowed- His family wouldn't rat him out, you mean? At the same time, he wouldn't allow me. You know, I think that's a, another part of the story, but he wouldn't allow me to be alone with his family either. Right. Okay. So yeah, um, he's monitoring what they're saying. Yeah. So with this job, I remember, you know, we run into his boss. He takes me actually to his, one of his work sites and I see his jacket at a desk and I see something of his at a desk and he's telling me he's management and you're like, okay, well this all adds up. He's walking me around the office, pointing out things 
oh, my uncle did this. Oh, we did that. He drives me around and shows some of the work they did. So there was this whole story about how he really led these projects. And I don't think any of it was true. And then he ended up telling me that his uncle was selling the business, was supposed to sell part of it to him and screwed him over. And he was out of work and he started looking for work and he wouldn't last very long at any job. But I remember he got a job with a woman who had actually been on HGTV and she had a landscaping business. He starts telling me she hasn't paid me. Like I need my money, like freaking out about money, like $60. So remember we drive during traffic and I'm always there to help him, right? I'm always there to get him there and rescue him and be there with him. But we get to this woman's office. She starts yelling at him and tells me, your husband is a crook. He lied. He stole. And I'm thinking, why is this woman so crazy? Also, why is she calling Taylor my husband? Yes. So I think he was yes. telling people I was his wife. And there's more than one instance of that where he would tell people I was his wife. He wants to project stability that he doesn't have. Yes. Yeah, not, you know, it's not just to me, but to the outside world. Right. Everybody's getting a dose of his crap, so to speak. Yes. And and I'm just wondering, why did that not stand out to me that this woman is yelling at him, talking about how awful he is and that he didn't finish the job and he lied about his skill set? And why did that not stand out to me even more than it should have? It's a rhetorical question, but you know, th there's one guy who was on uh, an earlier episode and he was on the receiving end of most of the abuse in this one. Right to the point of she was trying to break into their gun cabinet in the basement so she could get a weapon. And in the meantime, he's outside in the rain, hiding behind the trash cans with his cell phone, trying to get the police to show up because he figures she's going to, he, he could hear her down there with a hammer working on the lock. He was addicted to something he called grade A hopium. Mm. Hopium. I think hopium is a real thing. Yes. You are hoping that this is a one-off instance. You're hoping that the person is who you think they are. You're hoping it will get better. Yes. You're going to make up any slack in your own head or heart for that person. Exactly. And I think that's exactly what I did. And as it started to, as I started to see more instances of unrest and, you know, it started coming fast. It was almost like he couldn't keep up the persona he had created for himself. And you talk about love bombing did start with love bombing. You're beautiful. You're amazing. You're so smart. Look how talented you are. I love being with you. It was very much celebrating me and making me a priority in his life. And that felt good. Mm. It felt good that someone wanted to be around you and someone thought these amazing things about you. And then it slowly started turning to the backhanded compliments. I remember he said, oh, I've never been with a girl as curvy as you. I never thought I would be, but I find you attractive. And so it's this weird backhanded compliment. And you're like, okay. And I think that's how the, the verbal abuse started is he went from the love bombing to the backhanded compliments and eventually got to just the constant verbal abuse. You know, it's hard to even look back and figure out what the turn was, but there started being a lot of irrational behavior a lot of isolation from friends and family, a lot of just putting me down and making me feel like no one else would want me. Mm -hmm. And I don't always know what order, like looking back, it, I can't figure out the order of things. 
I do remember certain instances. And one instance of the isolation was I was going out with my friends for the first time since we started dating. And we were just going to go get drinks and appetizers at a, a little bar in Atlanta. And Taylor wanted to drop me off. He said, well, I'll pick you up too. Like have so much fun. Made me think like he was excited for me. But throughout that whole dinner, I'm getting texts. I'm bored. Where are you? Can I come pick you up? I'm ready for you to be home. And I just felt like it was easier for me to just go home than stay out with my friends. Mm. And when he picked me up, then, of course, he starts saying negative things about my friends. And he didn't really know my friends because he didn't really meet too many people. But I was like, man, that was really difficult to go out. And I think he said, like, well, why would you want to hang out with your friends when you can hang out with me? Like, do you like your friends more than me? I mean, I like my friends, but like not more than you, I don't think. You know, I don't want you to feel that way. What do I do? And then at that time, he pretty much had moved in. So there wasn't a reprieve from him. It wasn't a let me invite you to move in. It was just he was there every night. It was never a discussion. And I never thought to say you need to go home. How far into it would you say that this is when he's now officially not out of there? He's moved in. I think it would probably be within six weeks, to be honest. If not sooner, because I think even before that, he would show up a lot, but maybe there'd be mm -hmm. a night or two he wasn't there. But he pretty much was there all the time. I think there was a story about he got out of his lease with his roommates, which come to find out he always lived with his parents. He never lived with roommates, or maybe he lived with roommates years prior. So he, he based it on a true story that had happened years ago. He would call me incessantly. you know. So I was able to go to work, and I had that time away from him for eight, nine hours a day. But he would call me constantly after work. I remember I didn't answer because I was on the phone. And I called him back and he said, why didn't you answer me? That has been something that I still deal with. If my boyfriend calls me now and I'm on the phone with someone, I feel like I have to get off. And my boyfriend doesn't make me feel that way. It's just, you know, you see some of these things that stay in you. Sure. If I didn't get off the phone, I would get yelled at. And it would have to be a whole thing. So it was easier with Taylor to just get off the phone and talk to him. Just do what he wants. Just do what he wants. It was just easier. I remember another time with friends and thinking of all the different isolation is he was at his parents. He was driving home. I said, great, I'm at my friend's house. I'll leave maybe when you're closer to home. I get caught up. I'm having fun with my friends. And I show up at home after he did. It was a huge thing of why would you make me wait? We hadn't seen each other in a couple of days. Why wouldn't you be here waiting for me? And so it became when I saw my friends, it, it really wasn't worth having to deal with his anger afterwards. And so it was just easier to appease him. That sounds like it. I mean, you just, you kind of weigh the consequences and say, well, you know, my friends are going to have to wait this time and, and, and then it keeps happening. Exactly. And then your friends move on without you as well. They're talking to each other maybe and there's like, she can't seem to get away from this guy and life's too short and let's just go to, you know, the two or three of us and. Maybe she'll catch up some other time. Yeah. So, you know, you start stop getting invited because sure. you keep saying no. And the other thing that happened too, and I think some of what I did was purposeful, but I remember my lease was coming up with my roommate. I felt bad for my roommate being like, why would, what do you think of this person always being around? This person just moved in. That's not really fair to her. And I knew it wasn't fair to her, but I didn't mm. tell her that. And I said, okay, well, I'm just going to go get my own lease. And she got really upset about it, which I thought was interesting because we weren't friends. We were just roommates. And I'm like, why would you want to live with us? Like, this is chaos. 
And it was when I moved out of my townhouse with my roommate into another apartment that I want to say the abuse got worse. And it probably wasn't that far into the relationship. It might've been about four months into the relationship. But I remember thinking, well, that's when I had the conversation with him about moving in. I said, well, Taylor, you're always here anyways. Do you just want to move in together? We can split the rent. But I put my name on the lease. Oh, yeah. I did not put his yeah. name on the lease. And I think that was, you know, for a reason. Whereas when I moved in with my current boyfriend, both our names were on the lease. And I didn't have hesitation about it. But with Taylor, I had hesitation about it. So we ended up moving. You know, I think I remember my brother, my brother's best friend and my dad all helped us move. And I remember Taylor was just wanting to show off like how strong he was, how much could get moved is the most I'd ever seen him, you know, do. We settled into our new apartment, but it's all my stuff. It's my money. I don't think he paid rent once. So that's when the money part of it came in even more. So I'd been paying, you know, maybe for food here or letting him borrow money here. And next thing you know, he doesn't have money to give me for rent. And I started noticing things go missing and I didn't pin it on him right away. I had an iPad go missing and he's like, well, maybe you left it at my parents. I'm like, well, maybe I did, but like, can we call them? Have they found it? Where's this iPad? I'm a forgetful person. I'm, I can be a little bit airheady. So I'm like, oh, maybe I misplaced it and I just don't know where it is. So you kind of chalk it up to, or you just kind of put it on the fact that I must've lost it. Maybe I left it at someone's house. Then I started noticing money would go missing. I looked at my debit card and I had $200 missing and stupidly had given my pin to him. And I remember he said, Oh, I'm going to go buy some gum or something at the grocery store. We were at the grocery store together. All of a sudden I've overdrafted. Not even $400. You know, I, I wasn't making a lot of money. I was paying for everything. I was like, there's money missing. Where is it? He's like, I don't know. You should call the bank. I'm having a full conversation with the bank. And they're like, man, this, you took the money out. I'm like, did you take it out? No, of course not. Of course I didn't take it out. And then I babysat a lot. So I was doing extra work to keep us afloat. And so I babysat and a lot of times you get paid in cash and the cash would go missing. Uh. And you're just like, am I, maybe I didn't get paid as much as I thought. You know, you just are, you're not thinking the person you live with and think you love is going to steal from you. And so this, you know, what happened throughout our relationship where I just like something's off and I don't know what it is. Then his behavior started getting, I think, more erratic. I remember he'd be like, oh, I need to go drop off something for my boss, but you can't, you can't come with me. You need to like, we like drove up like an hour away from Atlanta and he left me at a gas station. I said, okay, we're driving my car and he goes and drives to drop something off and he says, oh, it's a rough area. I don't want you there. I'll come pick you up. Well, in retrospect, I'm sure he's buying drugs with my money. Uh-huh. You know, he would ask, oh, can I borrow money? I owe this person money for X, Y, Z. Right. Well, in retrospect, that was his drug dealer. But he didn't have the connections down in Atlanta. So he would drive up like an hour, hour and a half from where we lived to where he was from. And we would also see his family. And so there was always an excuse of why we could drive that far for it to make sense. And I think as that happened is more and more of the verbal abuse. So the isolation happened and then the verbal abuse of, That's almost hard for me to even think about what was said. I'm not quite sure I remember everything. It was a lot of putting me down, a lot of your dramatic, of a lot of talking down about my family and my parents, my mom being controlling and she was an issue. Because this whole time, my mom's asking me to break up with him. 
you know, I'm telling him this and that's putting, I think, more strain on my relationship with my mother because he's making sure I'm, he's always around me if I'm with my family or that I'm not going to my family. But my family lived like a mile or two away from me. Oh, really? You know, they were really close. Uh. And, you know, all of a sudden my mom wasn't letting my sister hang out with me. Oh, no. Yeah. And so you understand why, but I was like, I would ask, say like, hey, can we come over tonight? And my mom would be like, no, it's not a good night. And my parents aren't like that. I could tell my parents I'm coming over now and they would always welcome me. But they started telling me I wasn't welcome. Yeah, I'm thinking a lot about isolation, but then, like I mentioned, the erratic behavior started. So he started staying up all night. He wouldn't sleep. He would sleep in times during the day. I came home once from work early and he wasn't expecting me and he was on the couch when he was supposed to be at work. And so I start putting it together that like he doesn't have a job. Money's getting tight. He's just getting really mean, really mean and just saying hurtful things, mean things. You know, I feel like calling me stupid, telling me I'm the issue. It just started unraveling and I felt like stuck. I truly felt stuck. Like he's like, if you break up with me, then this is over forever. And I was like, well, what if I don't want to break up with him? Um, do I want to make that decision? Mm. I remember also during this time, you know, he couldn't keep a job, but I remember his car broke down and he didn't have money to fix it. And I needed my car to go to work. So he found a job where it required him to be at work at 6 a.m. And I would get up at 5 a.m. and drive him to work because they wanted him to have a paycheck so bad. So my life revolved around Taylor, you know, and then I would go to work and I would work all day. During that time, I changed jobs and I think I had no personality. I remember during this relationship, I just became very level. I didn't really have a sense of humor. I wasn't mean. I wasn't sassy. I was just like overly nice, but like in a very like plateau way. And I started having even friends from who lived, you know, across the country. When I would call them, they would say, I don't really want to talk to you anymore. Oh, you know, and that's hurtful because you're like, well, why? I didn't, I didn't understand. I guess I was different, but like, you know, so then getting more and more isolated where it's like, well, okay, my, my friends that I've had since college don't even want to be my friends anymore. Talk about that a little bit. I mean, is it because you didn't seem like you or because they think it's kind of like this guy's sucking the life out of you and I'm not going to be around to watch this happen? I mean, why are they dissing you? I think there's a couple. I think I lost a couple friends based on a few things. I think some thought that I had changed because I was in a relationship and that I thought, I remember one girl told me, you're really filling yourself. Even after I got out of the relationship and she knew what happened, you know, our friendship was never the same because she's like, you were really into yourself. And you're like, I was surviving. Like I was living every day, day by day. So I think some people thought that I had just changed because I was in a relationship. And I think for other people, it was hard to watch me be so different. But those people tended to stay my friends versus the ones who thought I had just changed and didn't know everything going on. And so you know, they would maybe be there from a distance. And it's funny, I think in these situations, you do find out who is your support system and it's not always who you think it will be. And so, you know, my whole life was changing is, you know, I'm at this new job. I don't have friends at work, probably because I don't have a personality. They don't know me. I think I'm having trouble performing. You know, I did my job, but I don't think I was like standing out by any means. Okay, so just setting up the relationship, it went from love bombing to isolation to money missing and then the verbal abuse and I remember the first time there was physical abuse and he would get really erratic as I mentioned and 
he would just go off the handle about the smallest little things and get so angry in my head. I'm like, I'm not letting anyone treat me this way. A man's not going to treat me this way. No one's going to treat me this way. So I would stand up to him. And I remember he pushed me really hard and I fell and I hurt myself and had like bruises. I fell onto something and I was like, you just pushed me. And he's like, no, you tripped. And you're like, did I trip? Oh, gee. Did I cause this because I stand up to him? And that was the first sign of physical behavior. He did make it feel like it was my fault. And I said, huh, maybe that was my fault. And so it was in my head, but I didn't really do much about it. But it became more and more volatile in our relationship. There would be screaming. I remember just at night, he would just go crazy. And another time there was physical abuse. I remember he just like punched me on the bed, was holding me down on the bed, just like wouldn't let me go. And I'm thinking like, I think I even said like, you're being abusive. You're being abusive. You punched me. You need to get off me. He finally got off me. I went into another room locked the door and he beat the door down. Oh, really? And I woke up the next day and I had bruises all over my chest. And you're like, this isn't normal. I took a picture of it because I was like, this isn't normal. But I remember pushing him back after that and him saying, well, you're the abuser. You can't, you can't complain about this because you did something back to me. Obviously that, that was self-defense. Sure it was. But there, you know, he got me to apologize and text about it. Oh, uh. And so it was in writing, right? Like, oh, I pushed you back. Oh, um, really? Yeah. After him bad. doing this for me for a while. But then he had something on me and I'm thinking, I was like, I'm going to call the police. I'm going to do this. And he's like, well, you have a job. You have something to lose. They don't know who the abuser is. They're going to have to take both of us. Yeah. And I think that's it is I'm thinking, well, I have a job. I have a reputation. I can't go to jail. So I don't think I ever called. I always remember wishing my neighbors would call because these were pretty volatile fights. I had a neighbor above me and she would mention things, but she never called. I think that's interesting. I think you realize that a lot of people don't want to get involved and understandably. That's right. They don't. They don't know where that's going to lead. They don't know if there'll be a reprisal. The guy finds out and it pays him a little visit. Exactly. And so I understood that I was never upset with people not intervening. But of course, I wish they had maybe sooner. Sure. Of course. So it just became every day was just... <laughs> fighting and making me feel awful and telling me what's wrong with me. And then he would do stuff like get so mad at me, he would disappear and start texting me that he was going to go commit suicide and say it was my fault. Or if I get really upset, then he would make me feel bad. Like, oh, this isn't the person I dated. You're just like so weak. That's strange. It was really odd behavior and just got worse and worse and worse. He, I remember he disappeared during this time for a whole weekend and he was supposed to give me rent money. And he just disappeared. And I was like, you were supposed to give me money. And he's like, oh, yeah, I said I would. I said I would. And just like didn't answer my calls after that. And I'm like stuck for a weekend. It's like the first time I have like alone time. But the whole time I'm trying to be like, how am I going to pay rent? He keeps taking money from me. He owes me money. And I remember having to call my parents. And my parents are like, we're happy to help you. But we're not going to help you when you're with him. Because they don't know where that's going. Exactly. When Taylor said that he would commit suicide, I felt like it was my fault. I felt like I was the person who could stop it because I was the person causing it. It's like I was, in my mind, probably such a hard, difficult girlfriend that he went to that place, but also goes back to the sympathy of, okay, you're a recovering addict. Like, I should be there for you that I felt like it was on me to save him. Like, what do I need to do to get him to come home and not commit suicide?
So it worked. That's one of the biggest red flags of all is the, if this isn't going to work, I'm going to kill myself. Or if you don't stop what you're doing, I'll kill myself. You know, and it's pretty successful card to play. It was a great card to play. And I think during this time, I started realizing that he was on drugs. I remember he had some white powder under his nose. And I might be naive about that stuff, but I'm not that naive. Yeah, I don't even know what he said it was. There was always an excuse, right? There was always an excuse. Next thing I know during this time period, he, like I said, he was being erratic and he would disappear at night. He also all of a sudden had this job where he had to go do maintenance at night. To get out of the house. Yes, to get out of the house. And it's funny, he said he worked for this retail store that has a few locations in Atlanta. And I remember walking into the retail store and they didn't know him there. And it's like, that's weird. We're going to shop here, but they don't know you, but you work here. That doesn't add up either. So I think it all was starting to come in my head, but I do feel like it was a little deep in because as this all was happening, then he would become wonderful. I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to make you feel that way. Like, I love you. And I think what compounded it too is my mom during that time kept telling me, you need to break up with him. You need to break up with him. I remember telling my mom, mom, stop saying that. I know what I'm doing and I need you to back off. And I think it's because I knew I needed to break up, but I wanted it to be my decision. I didn't want to feel forced. In the end, it has to be. It has to be you getting you out of it. And I know you talk about this a lot on your podcast, Bill, but what could other people do? And I think that's something I really struggle with because there is an awareness factor, which hopefully women can see the red flags and listen to them. But once you're in it, it's really hard for anyone to get you out but yourself. And I've had people after the fact say, I wish I could have done more. And I and I have trouble with them saying that because I know it's coming from a good place, but I also want to be like, do you think you have that much power that you could have saved me? And I'll answer that in a way. It's a bit of a rhetorical, but I would say the answer is no. It has to be the person. It's a, it's it's like the uh, addiction you talked about. You, know, you can dance around and say whatever you want, make threats or be nice and bake a cake, but an alcoholic won't stop drinking until they decide that they can't do it anymore that they've lost too much of themselves or they've lost people they loved or whatever that is. Same thing with drugs, same thing with this. To fill in that spot about, well, you know, I don't know what to do. What can I do for that person who's in that relationship? Be a great listener. Don't be a judger. Don't come down hard on that person because that person then won't talk with you anymore, probably, because they're getting it. They're getting aggression and abuse from the abuser. They don't need aggression from you, too forcing you to do something that they're maybe not ready to do. The other thing is just make nice suggestions. It's like, hey, look, there are hotlines. We could call a hotline. You could call a hotline. If you want, we could call a hotline and sit there together and you do the talking. And if you want to hang up, we'll hang up. So what happens is that you want the person who's being abused to feel for once that they're in control of what's going on. Because in your case, in all these cases, you've given up power and control consistently from the very beginning. You've allowed things. Little by little, guy's not paying in to living there. The guy's taking your stuff. You know, it's just little by little, he's chipping away. So it's like you're this beautiful tree, and by the time they're finished, you're just kind of like the tree trunk because all the branches and leaves, everything's been trimmed off little by little by little by little. So being supportive of that person is mostly being there for that person and saying, when you want to talk, I'll talk with you. Versus if you don't say goodbye to that guy, I, I really can't talk with you anymore because you've said everything you need to say and you should have broken up a long time ago. You've told me you're going to break up and then you didn't. 
you know, then all of a sudden you become this other threatening person in their life. Bill, I think you hit that on the head because I think a lot about what I needed during that time and it wasn't the judgment. I do think I was getting a lot of judgment and Mm -hmm. I felt they didn't understand me or I couldn't go to them. I know my parents wanted to be there for me, but I think they didn't know what to do. And I think having a little bit more of a safe space with them would have been ideal. I think that's maybe what your podcast can help teach people too is really what do these people going through that need Yes. And it, it has to be hard to watch someone you love go through that. And of course, I hid a lot for my parents. They didn't know the half of it. I don't think they knew there was a physical abuse. You know, other things that there were threats of killing me. I remember we went somewhere and I didn't do something he liked. And he told me he was going to kill me in the middle of the parking lot, screaming at the top of his lungs that he's going to kill me. I'm like, I don't even know if it affected me. It obviously affected me. But like at the time, I don't know if I really batted an eyelash. He kept machetes in our apartment and they were for hunting is what he said but i wonder if they were like actually an intimidation factor or something he was going to use this concludes part one of my interview with alexandra be looking for part two on the when dating hurts podcast we see now that when dating hurts has become the platform where dating and domestic abuse survivors can tell their entire stories from those early days when they thought it was love through the horrific nightmarish times of emotional manipulation, power and control tactics, and sometimes devastating physical violence. It sneaks up on people. That's how domestic violence traps people. I want to give extra emphatic thanks to the survivors who have come to us and told us in great detail their personal stories of abuse. These generous survivors have afforded us open access into the worst times they have ever endured. Their lives were made miserable by domineering abusers, people who were relentless in the calculated evil they perpetrated specifically to devise invisible prisons around those they told they loved. These stories, although challenging to listen to, are made bearable because we know that each of the survivors will eventually transition from a victim to a survivor. We see the sheer determination and immense courage it sometimes takes for a person to regain freedom. It's important to know that victims can always get help, victims can always get out, and victims can become survivors. Okay, just a quick reminder, the When Dating Hurts book is available on Amazon. It's in paperback and ebook and audiobook forms. If you're a survivor, and you have a story we need to hear, please contact me at Bill Mitchell at WhenDatingHurts.com. Thank you for listening.